Hello, free first hour subscribers. Greg Carlwood here, and over the years, some of the main things I've heard about the full two hour plus show and the membership are things like, oh, I've been meaning to sign up for a long time, but have just been lazy, or that the first hour sounds so good and complete that it's hard to feel like you're missing that much or assess the value of a second hour. Basically the old adage, you don't know what you're missing. And I understand that point. I don't really like to tease things in that sort of way. Feels too sleazy salesman-y. So I thought about how I could address that. What I might be able to do to convince more free listeners that it's worth converting over for. And there really is no better way to do that than showing free listeners what a plus show is like. Or how much more a second hour might contain. And that is my plan here, at least for a while, and we'll see how it works out for me. One older plus show in the free show feed every month at the end of the month as a sort of peek behind the plus curtain. Because people who are members hear full two-hour interviews in a single file. It's a little different from the way other people in this space do it, where they split the hours into two separate files. To me, as a listener, that's annoying. It's like flipping a tape from side A to side B. I don't really want to deal with that when I'm in the middle of something else. Just keep it going. It's also a waste of the listener's time to hear two wrap-ups and two introductions, trying to get back into the vibe. So that's why I do it like I do it. It does confuse people sometimes. Which means that for these free feed sample episodes, if you feel like what you're hearing is too fresh in your memory, skip ahead about 50 minutes and just pick up from there and you can be pretty sure that you're hearing all the Plus Show content. My process has always been find a natural sounding cut point about halfway in, make a chop, and then tack on the whole tell us where we can get more links, etc. section that is always at the end of a full interview. So if you're trying to work it out in your head, that's how I do it. But that said, I'm trying to choose episodes that I have fond memories of, even if the material isn't 100% fresh in my mind, and ones that are also on some of the more timeless subjects. No point rehashing some old political thing or a previous year's astrology, and just going by that gives me tons of great shows to choose from. I hope you enjoy this new process. I hope it gives new life to older episodes and re-highlights some of the amazing guests I've been lucky enough to have. And of course, if you end up thinking, damn, that was good. That was more satisfying than just the normal free show. Maybe it is worth $8 a month. Well, then I would hope that you do pull the trigger. I mean, why try to make it something else? That is the goal here. So I think everyone wins with this free plus show a month plan. If you want to know why I picked this episode and the date it originally aired, I'll add that to the show notes right along with the Easy Plus sign-up links. If you want to start that seven-day free trial, if you want Plus through Spotify, use the Patreon link. Otherwise, use the main one. Thanks and enjoy. The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close tested view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Dr. Zayas. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know what to breathe. Yeah, where would we be 
Fireside Chatters as we continue to examine pockets of power in the human story and areas where we see the course of history altered by the will of a few well-placed people, we've come to recognize the actions of the Holy Roman Empire and the overall campaign against magic just might take the cake. Of course popes and kings couldn't help but try to eradicate this natural technology wherever they encountered it, because the empowerment that comes from direct access to the other and the knowledge that you're more than just a helpless victim of circumstance did not mesh well with their plan for full-spectrum dominance. And we're still feeling the effects today, because centuries later, the majority of people are still completely ignorant to this entire slice of the human experience, and most attitudes about magical practice generally range from it being a bunch of silly, useless, primitive superstitions to it being evil, dangerous, and not worth the trouble it will bring. Conveniently, these attitudes of apathy and fear still serve their same purpose, and that ruthlessly fractured magical knowledge is still being put back together by the passionate few scholars and enthusiasts determined to restore it. Well, today's guest, Dr. Stephen Skinner, has dedicated much of his life to this very restoration and is one of the leading authorities on classical magic and the grimoires of old. Dr. Skinner was educated at Sydney University, graduating in English literature, geography, and ancient Greek philosophy, and was awarded his Ph.D. in Classics from the University of Newcastle for a thesis on tracking magical texts through the ages. He's the author of more than 36 books published in more than 20 different languages, and among them are numerous translations and restorations of magical writings, rituals, and grimoires that are often reaching the English-speaking world for the first time, ladies and gentlemen. He's also responsible for introducing real feng shui to the West and wrote the first 20th century English book on the subject in 1976. A man of many accomplishments and a true champion of the reenchantment of the world, Dr. Stephen Skinner, welcome to the higher side. Oh, thanks for such a nice introduction. <laughs> I try, I try. And thanks so much for being here. I'm seriously in awe of what you've done because you've really left your mark on the world and expanded the knowledge base in this underrated area in ways that really can't even be measured. And maybe to grease the wheels a bit here, could you elaborate on some of those accomplishments or tell people about some of the translations or restorations you're most proud of for those that are unfamiliar? Okay. Well, for me, when I was a kid, I probably had the same misconceptions about magic as everybody else. Hmm. But when I started digging, I realized that it's really a technology. It's a series of procedures. And although people don't normally associate scientific method with magic, scientific method is simply a matter of doing an experiment and seeing if it comes out as predicted. And if it does, that validates the theory. Now, a lot of the early grimoires actually had sections in them, which was called experimentum, offering the same sort of experiments and a prediction of the results. And this fascinated me. And I went back through the grimoires and then from them back to Greek magic and right back to the Greco-Egyptian magicians, because the Greco-Egyptian magicians, there was no problem with authority, at least until the Romans came, hmm. because most of the Greco-Egyptian magicians were also temple priests. So religion, general belief, and magic all came out of the same buildings. Recently, I spent some time in Egypt looking at some of these temples, which are quite, quite a good state of repair, with the formula still written on the walls. Hmm. But my initial 
access to this formula was through the, the Greek notes of a couple of magicians who lived in the second or third century AD. And they were not they were not frightened about writing down what it was that they did and what the results were from this, even to making comments at the end. You know, this has been tested so many times and works. And I thought that was a very direct way of looking at magic and about you know, a million miles from perhaps the 21st century way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that, that, was my, that was my driver. And I have to say that although I got academic qualifications because I had to learn to read classical Greek to be able to read these papyri, and I, I did go through every single papyri that's known that is connected with magic, Wow. And that was a lot of reading. <laughs> there are a number of translations of bits and pieces, but the translations, and somebody's going to have to forgive me for saying this, were done by people who didn't understand what magic was. Or they would just think, well, it's superstition, so it doesn't matter how you translate it. So there are something like 60 different words for the different procedures of magic in ancient Greek. The modern translations translate all 60 words as either spell or write. So when you read the translations, you have no idea what it is that, that they're actually driving at. So I went back and looked at the original Greek and figured it out and went through every single spell, split them up into different categories and worked out what the methods were. So I published this as a book called Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic. It's not a recipe book. It's not designed for somebody to pick it up and do magic, but it's designed to sort out what was done, how it was done. Perhaps the next book will be a little bit more practical, but that one Hmm. was something that needed to be done and hadn't been done by anybody. And then moving along, I was always very interested in the grimoires. The grimoires are the sorcerers or the magicians' manuals dating from about the 1200s right through to the last century. And my approach has always been, don't read the texts of their enemies, but read the books that they actually wrote and used. Mm-hmm. It's like if you wanted to investigate 20th century physics sometime in the future, you would read books by the physicists rather than people who are criticizing them. Right. Well, it's not a very good parallel, but there you go. <laughs> And I found remarkable similarities, that the techniques were very similar, even though the names of the spirits that were called would quite often be different. And then about 13 years ago, I moved to Asia, which is where I live now, and I met up with Taoist Chinese magicians and with a lot of coaxing, got around to talking to them about what they did. And I was quite gobsmacked to discover that the techniques, again, were the same. Hmm. So I think we are talking about something quite real here, because if they weren't the same, you know, if people just made up magical gibberish every time they, they wanted to do some magic, then sure, it's a waste of time. <laughs> but it wasn't. These techniques were all quite parallel. That's so interesting. And in terms of looking at magic from a scientific perspective, I think that's really the approach that is most interesting to me because I'm always interested in how things work and I want to understand the mechanisms behind them. I mean, being at this 
for as long as you have. Can you tell us anything about those mechanisms for those who are still trying to get their head around how this can work? Okay, well, this might upset a few people, and I'm sure there are some people who will contradict what I'm about to say. But 20th century magic has sort of become a question of visualizing and, and doing mental exercises and things. And it's not. Hmm. It's nothing to do with mental exercises. It is specific formula, and it is to do with independent spirits, angels, whatever you like to call them. And real magic consists in calling these entities, constraining them, binding them, and getting them to do what you ask them to do. And they, they can't do everything. It's not magic like in the children's storybooks. There are very specific things they can do. In fact, specific spirits have specific specialities. And if you ask them to do something that's not, as it were, on their list, then they just plain can't do it. But if you call the correct entity and you call him at the right time of day and you do the procedure in the correct way and you ask him to do something or you tell him or you order him to do something, then nine times out of ten that thing will happen. I'm still figuring out what the tenth time is because <laughs> it doesn't always work. So, you know, because I was uh, brought up in a fairly Western scientific way, I am only interested in things that work, and I'm only interested in things that are repeatable. The difficulty with mysticism and, and things like that is they're not necessarily repeatable, but I want something that is as repeatable as, uh, I don't know, metallurgy or mining or something like that, something that you can actually nail down. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to actually contacting spirits, because there are just so many, and like you say, they all have purposes. Some are attached to different days, different times of the day. You know, some chaos magicians, they talk about the idea of building your own pantheon of spirits when you're deciding like who to contact. But that's a chaos magician. What are your thoughts on that? Or, or at least helping people determine what spirits to approach early on when the list of possibilities can seem kind of overwhelming? Well, I knew Pete Carroll when he used to come to the Illuminous Club in London when he was working with Ray to sort of generate the theories of chaos magic. So we had many a, a long uh, night talking about these things. Hmm. But the spirit is either something that you have... No, the spirits are objective. If you call specific spirits and add them to your team, as it were, then that's a valid remark, and then you can continue to use the same ones. Chaos magic is a little bit more about, well, I wouldn't say generating spirits, but it's not quite the same. Mm -hmm. So how do I explain chaos magic when it works? Well, you know, there is in the background, as it were, a lot of random spirits wandering around. And sometimes a medium, for example, will get a message from a spirit, quite often not the Uncle Sam or the, the Uncle Jack that he, she purports to bring it from, but it will be an external message. So sometimes you can hit upon a spirit like that and then get a result. But that's a little bit chaotic, and I would prefer to, to use the grimoire system, which is that you have a... Well, they're called in Chinese, the Chinese magicians call them registers of spirits. In Western magic, something like the Goetia has 
72 spirits listed together with their their names, their sigils, and all things you need to call them. So I would tend to work from an already extant register of spirits rather than trying to generate them. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And having gone through all the grimoires of the Western tradition, are there systems or books of spells that you consider to be more potent than others? Yeah, there are. There's sort of direct line transmission of, of spells from the Greek magicians. It comes through the thing called the Hygromantia, which then became the source of the Key of Solomon. Now, by the time it reached the Key of Solomon, virtually anybody interested in magic has heard of the Key of Solomon. Certain things got left out because magic was usually passed on an apprentice basis from the master who can do it to an apprentice. And therefore, a certain amount of that became oral instruction and was left out from the books. Or they just didn't translate sections of it. So if you go back to the Hygromantia, that one is probably more complete than most grimoires. Hmm. To talk about the history a little bit, is uh, Greco-Egyptian about as far back as we can go, I, I assume? Yes. And I'll, t I'll tell you why. Because Greco-Egyptian papyri, the bulk of them, were probably the work of one or at most two magicians. And these were their working manuals. They wrote out all the spells in hand in ancient Greek, many, many thousands of words, and they tested them and made comments on them. Now, that kind of, as it were, private magician's journal is quite rare. If you go before the Greco-Egyptian, if you, you go B.C., Sure, there's, there's magical stuff in bowls, there's, there's magical stuff in various inscriptions, there's magical stuff in the Book of the Dead, but a lot of this is for the benefit of the dead, what they should do in the post-mortem life. Mm -hmm. And okay, if you happen to have just passed on, maybe some of this stuff is useful. I can't tell. <laughs> but on, the, on this side of the divide between life and death, the material in the Book of the Dead is not particularly useful. There are some methods you can extract from it, but it's mostly concerned with what you do in the afterlife. And likewise, a lot of the other texts that date before in BC period do not give the, the technique and are not written for the purpose of recording the method. You know, or they'll, they'll be written from an external point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really am interested in the history. Did you find that when you're looking at this, did you think the Greeks looked at or used magic differently than the Egyptians in any significant way? Were there different approaches that these two cultures took? Okay. Let's talk, talk about Jewish magic for a, a few seconds. Sure. Jews have often been considered to be exemplary magicians. In practice, there's very few Jewish magical texts before the ninth century. This may be because they've been destroyed, but I think it's more likely that they were not created because as a fairly religious group of people, I don't think magic was particularly popular. But a lot of the words in God names, archangel names, and so forth, flowed into Egyptian and Greco-Egyptian magic. So the Greeks, being very rational, which is why I love them, they think, in a very logical way, 
wrote out a lot of the Egyptian spells in Greek with comments and did it systematically. And this, the Greco-Egyptian papyri are obviously a Greek magician who could read Egyptian and who understood Egyptian magic, writing it out for his own benefit and for his successor's benefit. And that kind of text is pretty rare. Many texts talking about what magicians did, you know, how they joined the severed head of a, a goose back onto the goose and things like that, but there's nothing about how they did it. So these are stories. I'm not very interested in those. So I've, I've lost the track on your original question. Oh, differences between the Greek and Egyptian approaches. Ah, well, the Egyptian approach was mainly concerned with what you do in the afterlife. The Greeks were very concerned with what you could do in this life. So the, by combining the two, Greco-Egyptian magic has magic to fetch someone you love, magic to improve your health, magic to see a god face to face, things like that to be done in this life. And these, these techniques were then passed after the Muslim invasion of Egypt. They were passed up to Constantinople. And they were used by the monks there. And there's a lot of papyri uh, about that. And then finally, when Constantinople fell to Muslim invasion, they quickly relocated to Italy. And it's in Italy that a lot of these texts were translated into Latin. So I've been lucky to get the original Greek and the final Latin and compare the two. And uh, then they continued to be magicians' handbooks right through into the 17th and 18th century. At that point, they began to be more romantic, and the, the practical content was rather diluted by the, a more romantic approach. Hmm. This is kind of a random question, but you mentioned the Book of the Dead, and I'm kind of curious, because so many cultures, they have different funeral rites and burial practices. Being someone who puts stock in reincarnation, do you think the different practices might have an effect on reincarnation or the post-death experience? Okay, well, not having had a post-death experience, at least, <laughs> at least not one I can remember, my comments are purely on the basis of observation. The Egyptians mummified the bodies of their, their dead royalty particularly. And as far as I can gather, the purpose was so they wouldn't be reincarnated. By making them the body unable to decay, the person would then be allowed to stay in the in the summer lands in the Amenti, having a good time fishing, you know, playing lutes, whatever the Egyptians mm -hmm. did to life. At least that that's my take on why they mummified. On the other hand, Hindus almost immediately burn the body, and that I am sure forces the spirit onto the next incarnation. They will have a couple of weeks, maybe as much as 40 days, to hang around, and then, then they're forced into the next incarnation. Now, I think that's a sort of difference in, in worldview, that Hindus thought that they wanted to get on with it, as it were. Egyptians thought, no, 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 I think we will um, stick with the fun time in the, in the afterlife before we have to come to this earth. But as I say, this is this is my conclusions rather than practical experience. Right. I mean, that is interesting. I, I figure there had to be some rhyme and reason to why they're doing these things, and it might have some kind of effect. But 
Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And with practicing magicians that I've talked to, there seems to be a fairly common pattern of getting a big dramatic result early on and then having trouble getting back to that level for a while before the results eventually become more consistent. Did you find yourself in a similar pattern to that? Or maybe could you tell us about some powerful results in your early practice that kind of blew the doors off? Well, I was lucky to have had a good physical manifestation in my late teens as a result of working with the Goetia. And I managed to bind that spirit. And so from then on, I had the help of that spirit to bind other spirits. So no, I hadn't experienced a a drop-off in the practice. (laughs) Wow. Well, you are lucky. So, you know, talking about magic being scientific and repeatable if done correctly, what are some of the most common errors or important things that get missed in terms of doing it right that hurt that replicability? Okay. That's easy to answer. Doing practical magic, you need to consider several important things. One is you actually need protection from the spirit. These people who attempt to call spirits without any protection are really playing with fire. Spirits, and I won't necessarily include angels, are not necessarily pro-human beings. So in Greco-Egyptian practice and in the medieval practice of the grimoires, It is common to draw and consecrate a circle on the floor around the operator and then to place an area, a spiritus loci uh, or a triangle, into which the spirit needs to be forced to manifest. If that's not done, A, the spirit will either not come or come and lie and will not do what you tell it to do. So that's one thing. Second thing is spirits cannot read your mind, which is a is a great advantage <laughs> but they are they are sensitive to certain things and one of those is smell so every magical ritual has the burning of incense mcgogamathas thought it was so you could manifest the spirit in the incense other people so it could cloud the mind of the operator in fact it establishes an atmosphere that the spirit can manifest into if the, if the smells are nice At the end of the ritual, you reverse it and burn something which is very unpleasant. And this helps to send the spirit back from whence it came. But because the spirits have got such sensitive smell of vision, if you like, you need to fast beforehand so that the typical sweat smells of human beings are not there in the ritual. You also need, many of the grimoires say, You need to bath and purify yourself beforehand. That's a really practical thing. That is not a spiritual thing. It is to remove the amount of smell. The Egyptians said should not eat garlic beforehand. When I read that bit, I figured, now what is it that is common between, oh, and you should not eat fish. What's common between those two? They smell. And so if you, you know, if you've recently been smoking or you're, you've eaten garlic or you've eaten fish, then this tends to drive the spirit away. Then the the other thing is you need to do it away from the center of the city. Although if you got the techniques down pat, it can be done in the center of the city, but it's much better done out where you have no distractions. In some ways, spirits that you haven't bound 
a little bit like wild animals. Yes, you can coax them to come, but you can't coax them to come if there's heavy traffic thundering past the door and people screaming down the street. At least that is hard work then. So I, I, I usually either do it out in the open somewhere. At one stage, I was lucky enough to have a property in France, which is well secluded from everywhere else. And uh, I had a, a cleared area amongst trees that was quite useful. If done inside the city, then quite often it will either be a cellar or possibly a, a very high balcony. Hmm. But uh, anyway, that, that's what I found from practical experience, that uh, spirits are sensitive. They're a bit shy. And you need to encourage them to come, and then you need to bind them. Well, that's so interesting. I did not know smell was such a factor. I mean, I know saying the right words and facing the right direction and having a circle of protection are important when interacting with spirits, but I struggle to rectify how something like a chalk circle could have such an effect on a spirit or how facing north instead of east could really be such a factor in making contact. Do we know what makes these things work even? Yeah, I can tell you what that is. If you just draw a chalk circle, it will have no effect. What you need to do is then take a very sharp sword or dagger and cut the line around there. Now, when you do that, a trace is left in the astral of sharpness, as it were, and spirits will not comfortably cross that line. If it's just chalk, it makes no difference to them. But the line must be cut with a sharp instrument. It doesn't hurt also to then say appropriate consecrationary words. But, you know, magic is, is in, a, in a lot of funny ways, very physical. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, the, that's the circle. What was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, uh, facing the right cardinal direction. Ah, ah. okay. That, that is important because... Spirits do come from different directions. If you look at some of the grimoires, they're very specific. Uh, one, the Theurgia Goetia, actually has a 32-point compass rose at the front of the, of the grimoire, indicating which spirit comes from which direction. Chinese magicians also had the same thing, except they had 28 points, and they very specifically call from one of eight directions, or even one of 28 directions. Now, at a very basic level, if you've called a spirit and it comes from behind you and you're standing there talking and you've got your back to it, the spirit will actually be offended. They will not be cooperative. So it is always good to face the direction from which you expect it to come. Obviously, sometimes you may get the direction wrong or a little bit off, but if you're actually standing with your back to it when it arrives and you don't notice it's appeared, then the next steps in the ritual you won't take, and you, you, you wasted the evening. <laughs> so direction is important. The other thing that's important is timing, as you rightly mentioned. If you want spirits of the moon, Monday is a much better time to call them than, say, Saturday. If you want spirits of the moon, the first hour of Monday or the 15th hour of Monday is a good time because then you've got the hour right as well as the day. And the reason for this is that in the spirit world, there are tides and there are certain times when these spirits are strong enough to manifest and certain times when they're not. If you call the spirit when they're not in a strong position, they cannot come. 
because for them coming to the physical plane is very difficult. It's like if you and I conducted this interview underwater, hmm. sure, with breathing equipment, it would be okay. But if we just had to hold our breath and gesticulate, it would be very difficult. And so for spirits coming to the physical world, until they get used to it, is very difficult. So you need to give them, you need to give them a certain amount of respect, not, not turning your back on them. You need to give them an atmosphere that is pleasant to them, and by that I mean the, the incense that's pleasant to them. You need to coax them. And if you do all of these things, you may have to try two or three times, but you need to do it at the right time and preferably the right hour. And the, the restriction on time and hour really go back to 2,000 years ago. There were tables in the Greek papyri for the right times to call uh, particular spirits. I reproduce them in my book, and I can tell you that it makes all the difference. If you ignore the right time, then the spirit will probably ignore you. Hmm. And th this also explains a number of failures. People thinking that they can just, you know, get up on a Saturday night and call a spirit of Mercury in an hour of Saturn. It's not going to work. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm curious how this magical practice that you've had for quite some time has helped you construct a more accurate model for reality. I mean, these little magical techniques and kind of rules are sort of clues into the infrastructure we find ourselves in, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. What was it? Shakespeare's famous remark that there's more in this world than, than you and I think of. That, that's a totally misquoted phrase. But hmm. yes, there, there is a hierarchy outside of the physical plane. It doesn't often impinge with the physical plane, but when it does, it can be quite powerful. And if you have called a spirit which can do a specific thing, and that's what you asked it to, and you've given it good reason to do so, nine times out of ten, it will do so. And so I am convinced that this hierarchy is real, and so there's no reason to disbelieve that angels and various levels that you might read about in the Kabbalah also exist. And that makes the physical world just the, the more solid, the more concrete bit at the bottom of the long ladder of various different entities. And some of my friends would say this is a very medieval view of the world. And they would find that faintly amusing. But if you've experienced it, you, you, know, you have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, man. So... Something else that I've heard you say in a previous talk is that magic is useless if you just sit and read about it. It's fascinating and it's interesting, but it is a practice. It's a technology and the whole point is to use it. And I love how direct you are about that. I think a lot of this audience is probably in that place where we know more about magic than the average person, at least on an intellectual basis. But the material can still seem so vast and dense that we might not feel comfortable actually starting to use it. Do you have advice for people who might be right at that point? Is there a go-to ritual or grimoire you recommend people use to get their feet wet? Well, it is very easy to become an armchair magician and to compare grimoires and to read commentaries and all that sort of thing. And there are indeed a lot of people out there. But magic is actually hard work. It's not surprising that a lot of people feel that way. As for a go-to grimoire, no. Magic is quite difficult. You need 
a number of things. With ceremonial magic, you need to prepare implements beforehand. If you're a chemist and you want to do an experiment, you need to get your Bunsen burner. You need to figure out how to use it. You need to get test tubes and things to contain what you're working on. So in magic, you need to get the implements that are needed, such as the sharp knife to draw the circle. Otherwise, you're just a chalk circle and it's not going to work. You need to get the most appropriate incense for what you plan to do. And you need to get them ready on a particular day. And on that particular day, you need to prepare yourself by ritually asperging or preferably bathing beforehand. And most people are not prepared to do that. Or they take the view, I can just do this in my lounge room <laughs> when the kids have gone to bed. And the spirits are not really that comfortable in all the vibrations and smells and things that you had in your lounge room and the television going in the corner at the same time. This is not the place to do it. So a chemist wouldn't do potentially explosive operations well, probably some people have done it on their kitchen table, but you wouldn't do it in your lounge room. You need to have a separated space to work in. And as I've said, it preferably needs to be long away, away from human beings. But it, it, you can do it with a bit of extra effort. So people don't set this up beforehand, and then they wonder why it doesn't work. You know, I, I, one acquaintance of mine did it in a cellar, and the cellar was absolutely dirty from coal and god knows what else and the spirits just won't come they do not want to go to that particular space it's very strange that people think of well if we talk about black magic that the spirits are evil and dark and whatever actually spirits aren't spirits like a very pure and holy environment and if they don't get it they're not coming hmm. unless you unless you conjure them with but that's getting into other subjects. Yeah, we won't go into that. You've got to offer them a conducive space. And that space shouldn't be used for something else. It should be just used for magic. So most people will say, well, I've got a house and I don't have a spare room for that. And I can't be bothered driving into the country and finding a quiet grove of trees, uh, quite difficult in some countries. Mm -hmm. So they don't do it. They sit down and, and read about it. And, you know, that's commendable too because 50 years ago there weren't a lot of people reading about these things or, or even taking them seriously. Mm -hmm. So there has been a, a definite shift. I have to agree that even Harry Potter has helped in this shift. <laughs> yeah, I guess it all helps. What are your thoughts on starting with an ancestor altar or getting the best results with that approach? Not something you'd recommend? Okay. Spirits are of various sorts. There are elemental spirits. There are spirits from the grimoires. And you can also call ancestral spirits. So in a way, that is probably a safer procedure because your ancestors, as long as they realize that they are your ancestors, are not likely to be harmful. And indeed, mediums sometimes call spirits who will then help them. They would usually refer to them as uh, what's, the, what's the term? can't remember the term. But anyway, yes, an ancestral altar is not a bad way to start, but it's not the only thing. And one of the things that I often say is that actually dead human beings don't know very much more than live human beings. <laughs> I believe that. 
So if you want knowledge which is outside of the usual, that you can't find on Wikipedia or in your grandfather's chest, then you need to talk to non-human spirits. <laughs> Fair enough. And to get back to the history a little bit, like I mentioned, a lot of guests we've had, they do magic that maybe is more in the chaos realm or they've invented their own modalities, mm -hmm. but to have someone here who's so knowledgeable in classical magic, I'm curious if maybe you can shed some light on what a magical life was like before the suppression. Is there any way to really restore that picture? Well, we can restore the picture. Okay, let's, let's whip back to ancient Egypt. The priests did magic. They did it as a trade. And so if one of the villagers came and said they, they wanted an amulet to protect them against sickness or they're going to war and they wanted an amulet to protect them against being shot by arrows, then the priest would do that. There would be no condemnation of that. When the Romans took over Egypt from the Greeks, they were a little bit wary about magicians being used to either predict or cause the death of an emperor. And so several times they, they banned it. But then when Christians in the 4th century flooded into Egypt or whatever happened, and there were definite Roman laws against magic, then magic and pagan religion were sort of lumped together. So while the church was trying to suppress the worship of Anubis or the worship of Isis, the, their procedure was to treat it as a heresy and persecute people. And Christian persecution, the monks started it in Alexandria in, I think, about 397 or something, where they destroyed one of the major temples in Alexandria and destroyed many of the papyri in the library with the view that if it wasn't sanctioned by the Christian church, then it didn't exist. It didn't need to exist. And then, then this was followed up when the Muslim invasion happened in 660. The guy that conquered Alexandria found the huge library of Alexandria with, and there's many, many guesses, but, you know, 700,000 papyri rolls or whatever. The numbers are probably wildly wrong. Hmm. And one of the Christian monks said, what are you going to do with this? So he wrote back to his boss in Babylon and said, what am I supposed to do with all these papyri? And the answer came back, if the papyri conform to what you can find in the Koran, then there's no point, so destroy them. If the papyri contradict what is found in the Koran, then you should destroy them. <laughs> so he fed the bakehouses of Alexandria for six months. I mean, all the bakehouses with papyri. So people cooked their food on the collected wisdom of, of the Greek world. Wow. Which included things like you know, geometry, who the Greeks did prior to the Christian era, which has survived up to today, but no thanks to either the Christians or the Muslims uh, in destroying the texts. And then, of course, in medieval Europe, or in fact in, in Constantinople, it was quite often the monks who kept up the practice of magic. Some of them were persecuted for it. Or one of the common ways of punishing somebody was to take their eyeballs out. 
which meant that uh, they couldn't see what they were doing, but at least they didn't kill them. And so there were various attempts to suppress magic. One, because it threatened the current rulers, because with magic you can do things which might have resulted in a change of, um, what's the word the Americans use, in a regime change. <laughs> yeah. And also a certain amount of, of fear that uh, these guys got an advantage here and we don't really want that to be so. And the heads of the church also didn't want their, if they were not similarly skilled, and a couple of popes were skilled in magic, then it's better to just get rid of it. And while you're burning the manuscripts, you might as well burn some of the practitioners as well. Hmm. Fortunately, quite a few of the practitioners of so-called learned magic, people actually use the grimoires, escaped the fires, but uh, a lot of the manuscripts were burned. And so what we have in the West now is a, a fragmented set of information about magic. And one of the things that I found very useful in Asia was that I was able to see what the Chinese practice was and where some item was used or done, which is missing from Western magic. I looked at the parallel made the adjustment to the Western method, and it, it worked a lot better. And that's because Chinese magic, although there's been some persecution, is actually fairly intact. Uh, one of the Chinese magicians that I became friends with claims, and I'm not sure that that's true, that he is the 36th in line of, of magician, apprentice, magician, apprentice, right the way down. And certainly some of his magical texts are of considerable age. So that was confirmatory for me and also helped me to rebuild bits of the Western magical method. And uh, as I started this conversation, it's method that interests me because it's something that can be checked. There's no, no point in asking people's opinion or what did Jack do 300 years ago? Probably interesting, but I want to know how Jack did it, and I want to see if I can do it as well. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk to you about John Dee a little bit, because, of course, you're very familiar with him, and you've restored and translated a lot of his fractured writings. But he was also someone who seemed to take a scientific approach to magic, too. And one of my main curiosities is magic's influence and use among the elite, being a general conspiracy guy. But that's another area where John D. comes up a lot. But what are your thoughts on him and, and his practice? Okay, so you're right on track there. And we can, be, we can do the, the elite thing because the magic was recorded basically in Latin. Some of the greatest magic grimoires are still in Latin, haven't been translated. And John D. knew that, and he selected methods from several different grimoires melded them together and used them in a scrying context rather than the full invocation. He believed that massive prayer beforehand was all the protection he needed. In fact, when his scryer got in touch with, with various spirits, he found that he was not contacting necessarily angels, but also other spirits. In fact, Kelly on one occasion complained that he'd been pinched by one spirit and showed quite severe marks on his arm. Which, which may have been Kelly having D on, but anyway. So D quite often would be talking through the scryer to a spirit, which was claiming to be an angel, but probably wasn't. But D was using standard magical technology. And the whole 
idea was that if I'm contacting angels, A, it'll be safe, and B, they'll tell me the truth. But what he didn't take into account was, well, if they're not angels, and they don't tell me the truth, I can be led astray in all sorts of ways. And indeed, poor old John Dee was led a, a little bit astray. Kelly, for example, told him what he should say to Stephen, who was king of Poland. And uh, what he said to him was he told him off for not being a good Christian and how he should pray and do this, that, and the other. And Stephen just refused to see him after that, saying, if I want that kind of advice, I'll go to a priest. I don't need to go to a magician. Hmm. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But because magic was predominantly available in Latin and to a lesser extent in those days in Greek, you needed to be a scholar or a monk to read it or an aristocrat because they would have had an education which included learning Latin. And as indeed in, say, England up until 1950, um, in the elite schools, you would also have learned Latin. So the interesting thing is that the angel magicians of the 1700s and early 1800s were definitely almost all elite. So, for example, the master of the roles, which is one of the highest legal positions, I think Lord Denning occupied it recently, he was an angel magician. The Lord of the Admiralty also was interested in calling spirits. There were a number of lords and also a number of really rich and successful lawyers, and they passed the manuscripts from one to the other, and I've tracked in one of my books who owned what and passed it to somebody else, and you can see the change in methods as it goes from hand to hand. And they are undoubtedly all elite because you don't become a, a senior judge or a lawyer or a, a lord without obviously belonging to the elite class. Now, at the same time, those people who were not quite so literate would have been learning or would have been using a more cut-down form of magic, invocation without protection and things like that. But anyway, conspiracy-wise, you're absolutely right. In the 1700s and early 1800s, it was almost entirely the, the province of the elite. Hmm. Well, conspiracy media, it does tend to be a bit sensationalist when talking about magic, often throwing everything under an umbrella of Satanism and that nearly everything the elite do is a ritual or blood sacrifice to expand their power or absorb energy from the masses. And maybe I'm hoping we can bring a little nuance to that perspective. But do you see any indications that the elite class of today use magical tools to any significant degree? Oh, that's a, that's a curly question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I do know some members of the elite who do practice magic. That is true. One or two of them, they practice it really well. But I don't see any of them practicing it in the ways that the sensational media would have you believe. If we're talking about, who was it, uh, David Eek, <laughs> and pe people that far out, then I don't really believe any of that exists. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess uh, one question would be, do you get the impression from your study of magic that it could scale up to a level of blood sacrifice and that might affect its potency or is the, are those claims overblown? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to say straight out that blood sacrifice is one of the methods used in some forms of magic. Mm -hmm. And 
the reason is that the spirits need to be offered something. Nobody works for nothing. <laughs> and, and there's two approaches. One is you can bind them and force them. And the other approach is that you can gratify them and give them something they want. Now, spirits cannot access of their own accord something on the physical plane. It has to be literally given to them. So when incense is burned, the, the words should be expressed, which says that the incense is being burned for their benefit. If you think back into ancient history, the ancient Jews before 70 AD uh, had massive sacrifices of animals in the temple in Jerusalem, dating right back to King Solomon's era. And they knew that that gave them a certain amount of power. Once the Romans had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, a lot of that power was lost. Jews were scattered across the world. Very sad for them. And there was, there was never a possibility of rebuilding the temple. The temple was, in fact, rebuilt three times, or almost three times. And uh, even early in the Christian era, one of the emperors funded the rebuilding of it again because he was feeling guilty about what they did in 70 AD. But his reign was far too short, so not very much happened. But we're getting away from blood sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, it's an unpopular thing to say, but yes, small animals are sometimes sacrificed. And for those of you out there who are vegetarian, which I am mostly, and who are squeamish, I don't really see why there should be any difference between doing that and having somebody else slaughter animals so you can eat a steak. Hmm. But eating a steak obviously doesn't have any magical use at all. <laughs> but, you know, animals have been from time immemorial slaughtered by human beings, these days mostly for food. But there is still one set of magical techniques where blood is useful. One word of warning here. Those people who want to be politically correct will say, well, why don't you sacrifice your own blood, you know, prick your finger and a few drops. And that's a very unwise procedure because it establishes a direct link between you and the spirit, which in times after that you'll find very troublesome. Hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine. So we kind of talked about John Dee a little bit. Of course, he was uh, an advisor to Queen Elizabeth. Do you get any indication that the elite of today have similar magical advisors on call, or do you think those days are done? Uh, that's an interesting question. I remember that uh, Tony Blair and his wife, Sherry, had a rather new age advisor advising them on what they should do, which came out at uh, one stage. But I don't think she equates with what the sort of people we're talking about if the elites have their own magicians, then they're not very keen to tell you about it. Right. And, and uh, if I knew of one or two such cases, I really shouldn't elaborate on that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Dee did useful astrological things like pick the right date for Elizabeth's coronation, thereby making probably one of the best reigns in British history. I'm pretty sure that nobody picked Elizabeth II's date of coronation, hmm. and that it would have been sorted out by a public servant. In Asia, my other interest is feng shui, and I don't mean in the 
really crass hot way of just moving your furniture around. But I know that a lot of the elites in Asia use feng shui masters to ensure that their projects will be successful and uh, that the money will continue to come. In the case of some of the casinos out here, there are specialist feng shui masters who make sure that the money comes into the casino but doesn't leave, as in the, uh, the gamblers should please leave with empty pockets. But feng shui is not magic, but it was my answer in the sense that specialist practitioners are still used by the elites out here. And so it wouldn't be surprising if it was used by some of the European or Western elites. Somehow I don't get the feeling that the present president of the U.S. or even the past couple have asked that kind of advice. <laughs> that's, uh, what I, that, that's the kind of answer I generally get, is that it doesn't seem like they're into that stuff at all, that the kind of demonization or just suppression of magic is so severe at this point that even the elite class are missing out on a tool that they could have access to. Yeah. It's more than, these days it's more than suppression. What it is, of course, is, I won't say indoctrination, but the scientific approach to everything says, you know, if you can't see it or measure it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. My answer to that is you can't see radio waves, but radios still work. And how do you explain that? And if you can pin somebody down and ask them to do that, they'll go into a lot of theoretical stuff, but they can't really demonstrate except perhaps shielding their radio from a source. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing that has come up before is the idea that maybe all the signals of our modern world might interfere somehow with our connection to the spirit world. Well, I know suddenly that noise and smells interfere with our connection with the spirit world. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if having a Wi-Fi degraded the, um, uh, the one's abilities in that area. Of course, all of us need to be connected. I, I prefer to be connected to a cable rather than Wi-Fi, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I think it's the, the attitude, the attitude that, that magic is uh, nonsense and magic is fairy tales. That protects people from wishing to, to use it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think Harry Potter has actually influenced the younger generation in a fictional sort of way, but it's at least opened their mind to the possibilities. Absolutely. It gets the wheels turning, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and then so many more people of that generation are now looking to see you know, what they can find and what they can do. And I have to say, when I was a kid, there was very few books on magic out there. Nowadays, the world, there are many. And I, I'm, I'm more guilty than most for having added to the stack of books <laughs> involved with magic. Well, considering for how long people could be put to death for reading this kind of stuff, I feel like maybe we should do it just out of respect for people who lost their lives yeah. over it. Nice one. Yeah, well, the, the Witchcraft Act, I think, was only repealed in 1951 in England. <laughs> I think witchcraft informal persecution probably happened right up to the Second World War. <laughs> but it, it's, more, it's more disregard now rather than persecution. Right. Well said. It definitely is. And getting back to practical magic and actually interacting with spirits, another thing that comes up for me is uh, a general attitude 
of negativity because I guess I start to feel a little bit weird when it comes to commanding and binding spirits. It seems a little bit aggressive, I guess. Is it always so forceful or is that just the terminology we use? No, uh, let me draw a parallel. I said earlier that, that spirits are a little bit like wild animals. If you're out west in the States and you want to tame a, a wild horse, you can take a couple of different routes. You can feed it sugar and, and say nice things to it, or you can use the fairly violent way of bridling and subduing the horse and exhausting it and so forth. And that you might sort of parallel with binding. That works. Most domesticated horses have been through that procedure. Very few domesticated horses have simply become rideable through love and cuddles. <laughs> and I, I know that a lot of armchair magicians say, oh, you should really be nice and respectful to spirits. Yes, well, I will certainly be respectful to them, but they are tricky dickies and they will not, they will only do what they want to do, which is why a lot of magicians fail unless they are bound. If they are bound, then for one reason or another, if it's been done properly, they have to do in the same way that a horse that has a bridle, you pull on the left rein, the horse turns to the left. It has to do it. If you take the bridle and the, the reins off and you, you, you kick it in the side and you say, please, horse, go down the left path, the chances of it doing that are sort of pretty slim. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a, a great analogy, a great way to look at it, because it kind of, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it sometimes when we're dealing with things that we don't have experience with or have never seen before. But that leads me kind of into the next question, because I'm curious about the logic and reasoning of non-human entities. We can't expect them to communicate or think exactly like a human would. Is there anything to be said about the difference or how to make better sense out of our interactions? Yeah, they are very limited. They are limited to specific fields of action. Iamblichus said of them once that, well, he didn't actually say they're a bit stupid, but a bit slow on the uptake, and they need, need to be constrained. And uh, He said more, but I'm not going to discuss that now <laughs> because it, it, it comes right to the heart of how you do it. Um, yeah, I mean... We're all mollycoddled city dwellers. You know, none of us, well, very few of us, could kill our own animals to cook. Right. Somebody has to do it for us. Very few of us could do surgery on another human being. It has to be left to the specialist. And, you know, spilling blood makes a lot of people squeamish. But if you brought, I wasn't brought up in the country, but if you brought up in the country, all this is this, not such a big deal. And if you go back to ancient times, you don't actually have to go back more than about 150 years. When people were aware of all this happening in the country, it's not such a big deal. But we've been made politically correct and ultra-sensitive, all of which is good up to a point, but it does chop a large amount of our experience out. And then we wonder... One of the basic grimoire things is that the parchment that you do the, the key seals on things must be made from an animal because parchment is animal skin and that you should make it yourself. And, and I have done that and it's quite an interesting procedure and it's hard work. And I can tell you that parchment rather than 
paper or plastic or something is much more effective. So perhaps in some reason, the spirit can, I won't say see it, but understand the sigils on it because it's written on something that was once living. As you just sketch it out with a compass on a piece of paper, it's much, much, much less effective. Wow. People will not push themselves to do those things. Uh, one day somebody may discover how you can do sigils on plastic and still get the same effect. But it's sure as hell is not going to be me. Yeah, I mean, once we can do it on Facebook, we're all going to be set. Yeah, it won't happen. <laughs> it will not happen. Yeah. Uh, the There are only certain images and things that the spirits recognize, and these are not what comes up on Facebook. <laughs> Damn. Well, as for people's fears on this kind of stuff, I've heard you discuss the classic notion of the Faustian pact, this idea of making a deal with a trickster and losing your soul, and that it was more of a Christian invention to scare people off. And I think that's really interesting. How can we separate real concerns and dangers in dealing with this kind of thing from that lingering propaganda residue? Okay. You're absolutely right. It was largely a Christian gloss on, on the Faust books that he lost his soul. The pact is real, but the pact is what the spirit makes with you, and it's his obligations to you that are written into the pact. The, the, the whole idea of you lose your soul or whatever at the end, I think, is a, is a priest's view rather than a magician's view. There are dangers in magic. One of them is obsession. There are a number of people who get obsessed or possessed anyway, but if you're actually actively calling a particular spirit and you have no defense and you don't know what you're doing, then it is occasionally happens that the spirit will take up residence. And then you've got a serious problem and you need an exorcist who knows what they're doing. So there are dangers in doing magic. It's like, you know, electricity uh, with the right insulation at the right circle, the right phylactery. You don't get zapped. But if you do these things and, you know, handle a wire without, without the right proportions, then you may get zapped. So some magic like, like physics or doing household electrics is not without danger. Hmm. It's interesting, like, people talk about, obviously, the dangers of not doing things correctly. Uh, you, I guess you can get possessed or you could unleash something. It's curious that there aren't really very many, or at least I don't know, very many accidents in magic that have exposed themselves to the mainstream. Like you have an accident by not preparing things correctly, and somehow an entity would gain influence and it would be noticeable in a mainstream way. You know what I'm saying? Does that ever happen? I guess it doesn't. No, if, if an entity does gain that kind of control over you because you've been stupid and not taken any protection, then you're more likely to be talked to next by a psychiatrist and then committed. And then who's going to hear about it? Ah, yeah, fair enough. And there are an awful lot of people in insane asylums. Um, most of them are insane. Some of them have been put there by relatives, but some of them have also been possessed. And the psychiatrist, you cannot talk a spirit out. It's not, it's not possible. So psychiatry has no fix for possession. Hmm. And those poor unfortunates are likely to spend the rest of their life 
locked up somewhere. Right. And they're, you know, they're not going to be interviewed by journalists. And if they were, the journalists wouldn't know what to make of it. They'd ask the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist would give fancy terms, but he wouldn't be able to cure it. Or they can do trepanation or chemical effects so that the person turns into a vegetable and doesn't cause any trouble anymore. And then where's the story? It doesn't get heard. Yeah, that's true. Man, so, you know, you've looked at so many different schools of magic. How would you really compare and contrast the systems you're most familiar with for people who might find it a bit hard not to just think of them as one big soup? I mean, we have Enochian, Goetia, Solomonic, all these things. How would you separate them for people? Yeah, well, that's, that's a bit of a hard one. As the basic mechanism is the calling and, uh, of spirits or angels, if somebody wanted to start, it would be rather better to start with angels. And there are like one grimoire called the uh, Almadal, which only deals with the angels of the four quarters. And that's a relatively good place to start. There's a book recently by uh, Frater Ashen Chasen, who goes at some length about his experiences using that particular grimoire. And I have also used it, so I know that the names of the spirits that you call, or if you like to call them angels, they are fairly, I wouldn't say they're harmless, but they are safer. So you might start with that particular grimoire. Nobody should jump in and do the Goetia first up or even the Key of Solomon first up. You know, so you should tame a few simple ones first. Right. That was going to be my next question. Is there is there like a level of the hierarchy that we should stay away from in the beginning? Stay Stay with angels and lower? Well, you know, there's a lot of confusion between spirits and demons. Daemon originally was a Greek word, meaning a spirit who might be a personal spirit. Uh, and in fact, Socrates had a personal daemon, spelled slightly differently, which was a great advantage to him. And I think uh, a lot of the things that he said came via that daemon. The Christians got hold of the word in the 3rd and 4th century, modified it to demon, and declared all of them evil, which is not, not really true. So there are some operations for calling a personal daemon it will actually act as your guide and that's not a bad place to start because if you do have a personal daemon or a, a spirit a, benign, a relatively benign spirit who's as it were on your side and it can advise you and help that's a good entrance rather than diving straight into um, to goetic calling <laughs> Enochian well that's a specialized thing because D did not, how do I put this? The uh, knocking calls are quite extraordinary. They, they they will produce results. D didn't put a circle down, but he prayed an awful lot beforehand. I think that modern individuals probably have lost the knack of praying fervently or with uh, any great strength. So perhaps that's not so good. Mm-hmm. And Dee's so interesting. I mean, I guess he channeled the entire Enochian magical system from these angels that he was in communication with, with Edward Kelly for sometimes, I guess I've heard 10 hours a day, they were mm. <laughs> talking to these beings. I mean, that's 
a strong connection. Yeah, he worked Kelly really hard. He paid him 80 pounds a year, which in those days was probably like paying him 80,000 a year. So he paid him relatively well, but he kept him at it, looking into the crystal all the time and, and conveying. Sometimes Kelly ran a bit dry and had to make a few things up. And it's, it's fairly obvious when he's doing that. Or he had to go away to his room to think about it, which is when he would be planning to make something up. <laughs> but yeah, D definitely, he wanted, he wanted the, the, the deepest knowledge in the universe. Sadly, the spirits that he called didn't have it because I think that few of the entities called are actually angels. Hmm. Because the, the spirits of a lower order or closer to the physical plane are much easier to call. Angels are a long way away and have got better things to do and answer questions about when the Amada might arrive or, or whatever else D wanted to know. Also, another thing about, that I heard is interesting about D and Edward Kelly is their exploration of alchemy. I've heard rumors that they might have had some success in that area. What are your thoughts on their alchemical work? Well, certainly a lot of, yeah, I would go along with that. A lot of things that Kelly did were fake and tricksterish, but I think he had some success with alchemy. He finished up being a very rich guy even after he'd been locked up a few times. And he was given a title by Rudolf II and finished up owning lots of land in a, an adjoining town and also mines. And his house, I think, still stands. I discovered that his house in Krakow has been demolished and replaced by relatively modern buildings. But yes, I think that either he or Kelly really discovered the white and red powder in, well, allegedly Glastonbury. And for a long, long time, they were simply using that to do transmutations to say, see, we can do that. But they couldn't actually manufacture the powders again. So as they ran out, things were getting worse. When they broke up, they split up. Dee gave all of the powders to Kelly, who then went on to become a much more successful alchemist. So I think he must have been using more of these to keep his face. I'm not sure that either of them actually discovered the procedure to generate the red and the white powder, but I'm pretty sure that they used red and white powder that somebody else had generated. Mm. The, the other alchemist, which I think hit upon some really useful stuff, was, uh, what was his name? Uh, Rupert Sissa. Yeah, some of his writings seem to be quite, quite clear. I knew a modern alchemist in London who used Lapidus as his uh, pseudonym. And I saw his laboratories in a cellar in near Baker Street, I think in Malcolm Street, actually. And I think he'd got about four-fifths of the way. And, and the reason I say that is not because he just told me, but because the sequence of colors that appeared in the, the flask were the classical sequence. And with ordinary chemistry, if you're trying to get a sequence of, just for the sake of argument, red, blue, and, and then black, that's just a for instance, it's very difficult to fake that. Mm -hmm. And he did, get, he did get the right color sequence, but he didn't get the last step. On the other hand, looking at it from a scientific point of view, obviously using atomic manipulation, you could change lead into gold. And it doesn't seem to be a very good reason by heating, reheating, subliming, calcinating, that you could replicate the same thing. 
but I think it's possible. Yeah. So many people just chalk alchemy up to trying to turn lead into gold, but it's so much more than that. And the, the powders are so provocative. And just like you said, I've seen a few indications that the art is still alive, although it's very secret and it's even more obscure than magic. It does seem like some people are uh, behind closed doors still experimenting with trying to crack this case. Uh, they definitely are. A lot of modern chemical equipment like heating pans and things have been bought by modern-day alchemists. A lot of modern money has been spent. One aspect of alchemy which has come to the fore is plant-based alchemy, which the, the old alchemists I don't think did. But that's still quite interesting. I did get involved with it with, with Lapidus, whose real name is David Kerwin. But it seemed to me that given the number of alchemists who'd failed, as opposed to the number of magicians who had probably succeeded, that magic was a much more profitable way. I could see results. Whereas with alchemy, it sounded like interminable heating and cooling for years and years before a result would come. And, you know, if it was only, if it was only gold, then that's great, but it's not really a big deal. I mean, creating the universal medicine, now that would be a great deal. And in Singapore, I know a, a doctor, a researcher, who is actually looking at it from that point of view, that if there is some kind of product which would actually stimulate the, the listeos to uh, stimulate the immune system and kill all the bugs, then that would be a real contribution to human health and welfare. So that facet of alchemy is still interesting to me. Right. Yeah. Cheers to that. That would be pretty amazing. Uh, who knows if it would be released, uh, if it ever did get achieved, because it would interfere with Big Pharma's profits. But we can hope. Yes, you're right. It'd probably be bought out by a big pharma company who'd probably bury it. But um, yeah. anyway, as you say, we can hope. <laughs> or just keep it for the people at the top. <laughs> Yes, I suppose that's possible. And in which case, uh, we wouldn't know about it, would we? No. <laughs> so another element that kind of tends to get tangled up when talking about magic and trying to unravel the history is separating religion and magic and also the mystery tradition. What can you tell us about the significance of separating those things and where to really draw the lines between them? Okay, there's a very clear distinction between those. The mystery tradition is a bit difficult to talk about because the mystery tradition does not exist anymore in any... No? Oh, okay. There are individual practitioners, etc. And you could say that part of the work of the Golden Dawn was in fact like a mystery tradition. But I'm going to dive back to Greco-Egyptian papyri. In those papyri, the average length of a, a magical operation would be, I don't know, 60 lines or so in the papyri. The, the mystery tradition material in there is much longer, many hundreds of lines. So that's one distinction. The difference between magic and religion is pretty easy to define. Uh, a lot of academics uh, find it, seem to find it problematical and say that you can't distinguish because Religion uses some magical techniques, like priests have been known to work as exorcists, but I don't think magic uses any religious techniques. And the approach is completely different. 
First of all, religion is concerned with the gods. If it's Hinduism, then it's many gods. If it's Christianity, it's one or three gods. If it's uh, Islam, then it's one god. And the approach is one of supplication. As, as everybody knows, the translation of Islam is submission. And it is also true of the other monotheistic religions that the approach is one of submission. Please, God, do this for me. Nothing else. The approach of magic is not dealing with a god, because I think most magicians think that commanding a god is, a, is just not on. It's looking at a lesser spiritual creature, and it's one of command. And, and that, in my book, is completely different from supplication. So that's what I think is the difference between religion and magic. The mystery tradition, however, is designed to elevate the practitioner to the point where he is so sufficiently pure and spiritual that he can actually communicate with a god or at least an archangel. You're probably going to ask me, can or does that happen? Yes, I'm convinced that it can and does happen because I, I'm familiar with the, the techniques used. And so you've got three different, um, three different ways of human beings communicating with other entities. If you just look at how they're performed, religion is performed in public inside temples, inside mosques, inside churches. Everybody is invited to come. In fact, quite often people are invited to convert. That's that approach. Magic. The magician is not interested in large audience. He is only interested in either doing something for himself or for a client. And in past times, of course, working for clients, you know, just one or two clients at a time. And the work will be done secretly not out in the, the open, because you don't want to dilute these methods and you don't want the typical scorn which might come from people who don't understand what you're doing. So the procedure for doing it is different. The mental attitude is different. The techniques are different. I don't understand why academics feel that they can't separate magic from religion. I think in some ways... What they do is in their heads, they mix up paganism and magic. But indeed, paganism is religion. It doesn't matter what the name of the god is. If you're worshipping a god and begging him to do you a favor, that's religion. And so if you, like McMullen, if you confuse paganism with magic, because magic deals with multiple entities and paganism deals with multiple entities, then, then everything gets confused. So I'd just like to peel those apart again. Religion is public. Religion is supplicatory. Magic is private. Magic does not supplicate. Magic deals with, shall we say, entities further down the spiritual scale and closer to the earth. Religion deals with, with gods, and quite often rather inaccessible gods. Yeah, I think that's a great breakdown. And the confusion for a lot of regular folks, I think, just comes from the Roman Catholic Empire shutting it down, they thought, oh, well, this is just religious infighting. I just had this discussion with an atheist friend of mine who thinks I'm crazy for this interest. And I say to him, look, man, if you have a problem with Catholicism, 
you should care about magic because this is the kind of stuff that they were trying to stamp out. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, maybe you should pay attention to it just despite these people that you hate so much as an atheist. <laughs> well, I think probably that atheists would make the worst kind of magicians because <laughs> they're not even going to give any credibility to anything that they can't see, touch or push. Whereas you have got to, well, we won't go into that. Um, and, and, you know, why shouldn't they be? I think that a large number of people who probably sign on a census form, Church of England or Roman Catholic, probably in their heart are more atheist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. And I've also heard you discuss the Egyptians' knack for breathing a certain life into statues to give them that sort of sentience that can be communicated with. It was something you said in passing, and I really wanted to ask you about that because it's a theme that has come up before in conversations about the muse concept, about Greek statues and Renaissance art, and powerful works like the Mona Lisa, and the idea that that's why people might be attracted to it because it has some kind of quality there. But what are your thoughts on the intersection of art and magic? Do some of these great works either by accident or design, end up becoming outposts for spirit contact? Okay. Let's examine pagan religion or for the moment. Quite often a lot of the idols have some spirit embedded in them. And there are very precise techniques for either breathing, breathing life into the thing or trapping a spirit inside. And, and most people just find that incredible and they'll go, oh, what are you talking about? And magicians have frequently done things like this, either into a, a small image or into even a talisman. And by tying the, the individual spirit there, it gives you a point of contact and it's not going to disappear. And then you can continue to press it to bring about the effect that you want brought about. So I, I have absolutely no doubt that spirits can be embedded in statues. Uh, to a lesser extent, paintings, uh, statues much easier. There was a modern Czechoslovakian magician called, what was his name, uh, Frantisek uh, Baden. And he, in his books, quite clearly outlines the method for doing it. And I can vouch that it can and has been done. <laughs> So does that answer the question? Yeah, I think that's just so interesting because we see tons of statues in Greek and Egyptian culture, and we know they had these practices. So I've just been curious about to what degree that might have been a part of their art. I think it was fairly common. For example, the statues in, in the main Greek temples definitely would have had the, the gods, if not tied to the statue, at least connected with the statue. Hmm. And because you need to localize gods and spirits. We're, we're only human. We can't, we can't deal with the big one in the sky. We can't deal with something which we can't see. So by tying at least a part of it to a statue, then we can address it. Mm -hmm. It's again like, like facing the right direction in the circle. You can face the statue. And here, I suppose, you've got a magical technique, which is abuse in religion. As for the Mona Lisa, I can't really say. The only time I've seen the Mona Lisa was over the shoulders of hundreds of other people <laughs> craning their necks. And uh, if the Mona Lisa had anything to say to me, it was impossible to hear because of the din. So 
I, I think a lot of that is uh, just publicity and she's been written up. She's a great work of art, but maybe not the only great work of art. <laughs> and then uh, because I live out in Asia, I quite often frequent temples and it becomes very clear that some are almost empty. You can walk in and there's no, no buzz at all. But others, uh, there was one such temple in Cambodia, which was devoted to the Taoist gods, and they were very palpable and they were very present. Mm. You could take the worst kind, or not worst kind, take a skeptical person in there, and after a few minutes, even they would begin to feel the atmosphere. Hmm. That's intriguing because yeah, I'm still in that intellectual phase and I'm pretty energetically dense. I haven't ever, you know, I've gone places where people say they feel an energy, haven't really felt much energy, but maybe I'm just working on that. No, no, not, not at all. I can relate to that. I don't consider myself particularly sensitive to these things, but that particular temple in Cambodia, you have to be incredibly thick-skinned not to feel it. That has definitely had the statues in there had definitely been enlivened. Hmm. Yeah, because most of the outside of Asia, you know, any pagan temple in Europe has been, you know, completely destroyed or moved a few times or um, embedded in concrete or, you know, whatever else. And so there's not much to be felt in Europe anymore. Right. It's probably even harder in the United States, I'd assume. I wasn't going to say that, but you're, you're dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, one more question about art and magic. I mean, you said it'd probably be easier to uh, attach a spirit to a statue rather than a painting. What about the possibility of music? Is that too far out? Attaching a spirit to music that I'm sure cannot be done. Hmm. Fair enough. That's another one of those things the conspiracy world sometimes talks about. Well, I mean, uh, one could use music as an accompaniment to a ceremony, but it would be more of a distraction than anything else. Hmm. I've also heard that talked about in classical music, too, that uh, some of those old guys had uh, magical methods to their music, but who knows? That could be all hyperbole, too. Oh, there's some wonderful stories about violinists. I'm just trying to think who, having sold their soul to the devil, then played the violin with great vim and vigor. I'm not particularly musically inclined, so I, my real answer is I don't know when it comes to that. Right on. Well, this is another weird one I got for you, and I got to ask, because you're very knowledgeable about the magic side of things, and there's a trend in the field of ufology now to equate these strange sightings or the abduction scenario more closely with magical workings or spiritual entities as opposed to some alien being from outer space. Have you given any thought to that kind of the, the Jacques Vallée attitude? Do you think that perspective has any merit? I, I don't have an answer, for, but I think it's quite an interesting idea that, in fact, the aliens might be from this world, but, uh, in fact, spirits or... I mean, there, there was some writers who thought about them as coming from the inside of the earth, mm -hmm. stories about drill and things like that. Even I think Bulwer Lytton wrote a book about that. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's an interesting possibility, but I have no direct knowledge of it. Mm. 
never having seen i've seen the occasional thing in the sky which could have been a flying saucer but i have had nothing any closer than that so i i, I really don't know right on well, what, what about the extent to which a entity could manifest physically i mean obviously people see things when they perform rituals they they get uh, visions but is there a way for is it possible for an entity to manifest physically and stay in that form if if it so choose or is there a mechanism there for anything like that yes that is possible i, I have seen examples of that let me give you a story about something that happened early on in my practice i sometimes tell the story because it is very concrete and uh, the evidence was photographable I was present at an invocation of a particular Goetic spirit called Agares. And in the medieval manuscript, Agares is spoken of as, as being like a bird or having a bird head. And it is even drawn slightly like a bird. But when we were doing this, none of us actually thought about his bird-like qualities. And we were just thinking about the, the other concerns of getting the thing done properly. And the evocation was relatively successful, but we didn't get the visible manifestation. We did get the objective that we were trying for, but not a visible manifestation. But towards the end, an entire flight of birds came down the chimney. This was in a, a place right out in the country and began to fly around the circle endless in an endless stream of birds. And then when it was banished, they went up the chimney again. And we all thought, uh, it didn't, they didn't enter the circle. They were just on the outside of the circle. And everybody thought, okay, are we having a good hallucination here or do we actually get a physical manifestation? And we finished and we tidied up and we left the room and we turned the light on before we left the room. And lo and behold, around the circle, was um, quite a considerable amount of birdship. <laughs> None of it entered the circle. So we know from that that these were physical birds. Now, were they driven down there by the spirit or were they just having a, having a lark? My belief is that they were a manifestation of the spirit that was very physical. Because in the middle of the night, somewhere around about uh, one o'clock in the morning, what are birds doing? And even then, flying down a chimney, parading around a circle rather than crossing it, it just seems pretty unbelievable. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, it was there. We went back the next morning, photographed it, and, and yes, there was no bird shit inside the circle at all. Wow. So the answer to your question, that, that's just one example. I could instance other examples, but I think one story is quite enough, is yes. Uh, you can get relatively physical manifestations. Sometimes it's it's visible to the point of three-dimensional. Sometimes you can see what's behind it through it. Quite often it 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 uh, you know swells and contracts and otherwise doesn't hold steady. But yes, physical manifestations are possible, mm. and it's really tough for the spirit to do that. I would assume, yeah, ener energetically, that must be. But that is a, a really awesome story. And you mentioned that you achieved your magical aim in there. And that made me think of uh, something I heard you talk about where 
in terms of the history, you've described that magical targets or goals have kind of changed quite a bit when you compare the real heyday to modern times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. For example, just let's start back at the beginning, going back to the Greco-Egyptians. There are about 60-odd different things that they, they strove to do, the, the uh, magical operations for invisibility, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute. Uh, evocations to get an answer, uh, like the. In the case of the Egyptians, it was either into water and oil or into a lamp. Producing, uh, compelling someone you're in love with to re respond in the same way, and so on. But there was no magical operations, give me more money. <laughs> and, and whereas you, you read of people's efforts these days, and one of the top aims is let me win the lottery or give me more money. So there's one drastic change. What other things have changed? Well, I mean, things like invisibility, uh, you would normally categorize that as something that can't happen. Mm -hmm. And I would have categorized it the same way. But then when I look back at the Greek, the word was actually amorosis. And uh, we've been translated by other translators as invisibility. And I tracked the word down and had a look. And its real meaning is darkening. And so it's not really invisibility. It's just the turning down of the light in a person. And I've experimented with this and been able to stand in the middle of a shop and completely, as it were, turn out, uh, darken myself to the point where people walk straight past me or even bump into me, not having seen that I was there. Uh, and that, that's from a method that I did get from the Greco-Egyptian papyri. Wow. So, but nobody does that anymore. Uh, I mean, if you're like Crowley and decided you're going to do it in a, a highly lit restaurant and run around shouting and waving your arms, then obviously you're going to be visible. There's no amount of darkening is going to enable you to do that. <laughs> so, uh, I'm able to stand even in a crowded room and nobody's looking at me. And if somebody's trying to find me, they can walk right past me several times and still not find me. Wow! It's only got it's only got a limited application, but it's it's just one example of a technique which isn't done much nowadays, but was quite common in uh, Greco-Egyptian times. That's cool. Yeah, it's not straight up invisibility, not quite so epic, more of a subtle thing, but definitely in that wheelhouse. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, and quite useful in some circumstances. I can imagine. <laughs> then uh, causing dreams is another thing the Greco-Egyptians did. And what they wanted was prophetic dreams. So they wanted a dream in which a specific god would come to them and give them an answer to a question they were bugged about. And if you're getting clear answers, uh, this is quite often a little bit more useful than, say, getting an answer from the Yijing or from uh, Tarot. So that was one other technique. But one of the fascinating techniques, which isn't practiced at all anymore, is sending dreams. And the Greco-Egyptian magicians had a method for sending a specific dream to another person. And I've, I've messed around with that. Uh, I've had some success with that. that that's sort of fun. <laughs> that sounds fun. 
And I was going to ask you about divination arts as far as, uh, you know, tarot, astrology, the I Ching. Is, is there a form that you find most potent or one you found more successful than others in terms of divination? If you want advice, then the I Ching is quite good because it doesn't, it doesn't say this is going to happen, that's going to happen, but it tells you what you should do if you are an honorable and good person. If you wanted more information, then the tarot is quite good. But the tarot has to be done with the right frame of mind. My wife is quite good at doing tarot readings. I've seen her shock people with the amount of detail. There are other, well, scrying, crystal gazing. I've never found that very successful for me personally, but I'm sure there are people who do find it useful. Yeah, the, but the, diff, the basic difference between divination and magic is divination seeks to find out what will happen. Magic seeks, seeks to change it. Mm. <laughs> and, and I am always in favor of seeking to change it rather than finding out what's going to happen and then going, oh, my God, that's going to happen. What can I do? Absolutely. And I guess there are limitations to that too. Would you consider it just like a, a probability enhancer? Is that would that be a definition of magic? No, no. It's more exact than that. Really? Yeah. If it's done right, four times out of five or nine times out of ten, and by done right I mean you've selected the right spirit, you've asked the right question, you use the right time, the right incense. You do everything absolutely right and it works. Divination is more like a probability enhancer because you will get glimpses of what may happen in the future. But sometimes interpreting, you need somebody who's um, is good at that sort of thing. Somebody who's, I mean, it's the old gypsy tent thing. Somebody who's been telling fortunes for 40 years is actually probably more, much more likely to be able to read the cards correctly than somebody who picked up a book and learned about the tarot last week. Mm-hmm. And I, I do love how black and white you talk about the fact that it does work if you do it right. But you're right in that how often do naysayers, do these these critics, how often have they done the real hard work in getting all that stuff right and the whole setup and, and getting the knowledge right and then actually performing a ritual? They don't do it. So to say that it doesn't work, it, it's kind of silly. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's like one of my less complimentary phrases about academics writing about magic is that you wouldn't expect a professor who, a professor of chemistry who'd never touched a test tube to know what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. Agreed. You've got to do it. And then they, they will hypothesize it might be this, it might be that, or they'll look at parallels in uh, African magic or whatever else. And then African magic is miles away from classical grimoire magic or classical Western magic. And because you can't do it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's lots of things I can't do, like I don't play tennis very well, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's a very bad, <laughs> a bad parallel. Uh, the rest of my family play it very well, so I feel a bit... Um, cut out there. No, if you don't do the experiment, then you, your result is not valid. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the Royal Society hadn't been formed in 1660-something, 
and people were still going along the lines of, well, the Bible says that there are seven planetary spheres and they all rotate around the Earth. Therefore, that must be it. But they haven't done the experiment. They haven't got the telescope. They haven't measured the movement of the planets. Then their opinion is worthless. Mm-hmm. And the, the same is true if, if somebody said, if I put two electrolysis terminals into a solution of copper sulfate, no gas will be produced at the end because all you've got is copper and, and liquid. So hydrogen will not be produced on one of the, the terminals because they haven't done it. If they did it, they would find that indeed hydrogen is produced on one of the terminals. But you've got to do, you've got to do the work. And magic is easily as demanding as, as chemistry. Yeah. You, you just put any old shit in the test tube and you won't get the result. You put the right shit in the test tube, but you don't heat it and you won't get the result. Hmm. You don't heat it to the right temperature and you won't get the result. And then and the chemist will say, no, no, it doesn't work. But you've got, to, you've got to do the steps. And you've also got to prepare yourself as well uh, in the ways that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well said. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of half-assing some magic attempts that didn't work. And, and, and why not? Why not? We've all, self-included, done the stuff not properly and it hasn't worked. But fortunately, that's now some time ago. <laughs> Because it's damned hard. You need a space. You need a place. You need equipment. The equipment has to be pure. It has to be consecrated properly. It has to be as much as possibly made by your own hands so that other influences aren't there in the equipment. Mm. You have to cut the circle so that it's actually cut with a blade. You can't stand in the middle of the room, point your finger at the circle and go, zap, I've fixed the circle. (laughs) doesn't work like that. You've got to bend over and do it. You can't just burn joysticks when you're trying to call a mercurial spirit. You've got to burn the right incense. You can't, you know, there's many things you can't do, but if you do it right and you follow right through to the end, four times out of five, you get a result. Mm. Not, not one time, but four times out of five. <laughs> and that, that is one hell of a boost when you do get a result. Oh, I'm sure. And after that, sometimes the problem is, well, what do I do next? What do I ask for next? And uh, anyway. <laughs> well, it, it's a formula and you got to get it right. Yeah. And it's a complicated formula. It's not simple. Mm-hmm. And before we really start winding down here, of course, we brought up feng shui a little bit ago. And I want to ask you just a little bit more about it because it is so interesting. I don't know when I'm going to talk to somebody who is so well-versed in feng shui again. And uh, being the expert, like I said, I'm energetically dense. But are there any principles uh, of the art form that people might be able to play around with in their home for maximizing the flow of good energy in their space in a way that they might be able to feel, hey, there is something here? Uh, Yes, but again... It's technical and it's complicated. You can't just put a wind chime in the left-hand window corner and hope that it works. It doesn't work like that. One of my reasons for liking feng shui is that I I learned it in Hong Kong many decades ago. And I learned it from a guy who was a feng shui master for some of the elite. 
And I saw these guys paying him every year, whether they called on him or not, they paid him a salary every year. At the end of the year, he got a, a purse and a significant amount of money. And I thought these, these hotshot businessmen and Chinese businessmen are pretty tough. I'm not going to be paying this guy all this money if it's bullshit, mm -hmm. because they'd soon find out. So that was my first introduction to it. And um, eventually he taught me the he taught me the practical side, but confessed to me that he couldn't teach me the theory because his master hadn't taught him, and his master before that hadn't taught him. But I, I learned the I learned the theory later. So I've learned my feng shui back to front, starting with the practice and then later figuring out why it works. And it again is a technique. And of course, in America and in the West, it's been dumbed down and made so simple. Like there was one, there's one method of supposed feng shui which says, oh, if you don't have a compass, you just call the front door north. <laughs> and you can, you can see immediately that you, you might be right one time in eight, but that's not a very good idea. There's another dumbed down version which doesn't use the lopan. The lopan is a, a very complicated Chinese compass. You need to measure accurately. I go sometimes to clients. I have a lot of clients out here, mostly Chinese, actually. You go to clients and you you say you want to know the facing direction of the house, and they'll say, oh, it faces east because the sun rises there. That is not good enough. You have to find out to within about five degrees what the exact facing is because the basis of feng shui is physical. One of the reasons why I was so knocked over by it was because my first, my first profession was as a geography lecturer. And so measuring the land and working with maps and things was sort of second nature to me. When I saw this guy doing really detailed measurements and detailed calculations, I thought, yeah, there's got to be something here. And then I saw that when he made the changes, real things happen in the lives of his clients and i was hooked so that was 1976. Um, a lot of people think well feng shui is a bit woo woo but done properly it's just as scientific and almost as complicated as magic and frankly if you just want to do things like uh, accumulate money or have business success or have a lot of good relationships, feng shui actually works easier and faster than magic. Hmm. That's interesting because, I mean, you've just explained it, but up until this point, its effects seemed a bit vague to me, you know, good energy or bad energy in our homes. And it's like, okay, well, I don't feel energy generally, so I don't know, am I just supposed to be in a slightly better mood? But that makes a little more sense. No. No, it's got nothing to do with being sensitive. You can be completely dense and still do the calculations and get it right. It's also got nothing to do with ecology. There's a modern trend which tries to tie feng shui up with ecology, which is nonsense. The, the point of feng shui is, is changing the occupant's uh, relationship with the outside world so that if it's money they want, the money comes a lot easier. If it's networking contents they, they want, these things come a lot easier. If it's girlfriends they want, uh, and you make that adjustment, they will come a lot easier. Mostly, I work for Chinese rather than Western clients, 
Western clients go, oh, can I win the lottery? And I go, no, it doesn't do that. Chinese clients, however, know exactly what they want, listed down, and then it's a, a series of steps. Um, I know you'd like me to give you a quick hint as to what you should do, but it varies from place to place. I suppose probably the simplest thing is that outside of your front door should be clear and open. Um, now, if you if you open onto an alleyway full of garbage, then your feng shui is never going to be good. If you open onto a wide field, then you have the opportunity to use feng shui to improve your life considerably. You know, it is that physical. Um, internally, you need to make very specific changes. So if one of your listeners sort of lives with a house which faces exactly southwest, the answer will be different from another one of your listeners whose face, house faces exactly uh, north or east. Um, so I can't give general information because the calculations need to be done beforehand. I respect that. It's too precise. It is. And <laughs> so before we go, I did see that it looks like you're involved in an upcoming release about the Vonic manuscript. Of course, it's legendary because so many people have been unable to decipher it or decode it. Having translated so much and being so familiar with old grimoires, what's your take on, on the manuscript and its purpose? Do you think you cracked the case? Well, if you ask me point blank, can you translate it? The answer is no. Every time somebody comes up with a theory about it, it's, oh, it's, it's bound to be this kind of code or it's, it's bound to be coded. Like, it is actually, I'm fairly certain that the original language is Italian and Latin, but it's been coded in such a way. It is not gibberish because people have done letter counts on it and it has the uh, proportions of letters of a natural language. So it's not gibberish. There's definitely something in there. The plant drawings are the, the giveaway because a number of the plants have now been identified. It's not really magic. It's, it's pharmacy, pharmaceuticals drawn from plants. It's cosmology. It's astrology. And so it's obviously done by somebody who lived in the world where all these things were related rather than separate faculties at universities. It's been the, the uh, stuff is written on and the ink have been dated. And I think it's been dated to 1420 plus or minus 20 years. So it's really quite old. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't fraudulently invented by, by Voynich himself. It wasn't invented by D. In fact, I think D probably never owned it, despite the stories that he sold it to Emperor Rudolph II. It wasn't written by Bacon. The author will probably always remain anonymous. One day, I believe, somebody will crack it. What we've done in this is produce a very clear photo representation of it, showing how the pages fall and showing the detail and drawing one's attention to several clues and points and things. I wish I could say that we cracked it <laughs> and translated it. I've, uh, or various researchers have figured out some words, particularly plant names in, in Italian predominantly, but that's it. It goes no further. Now, to my own detriment, I have to say that there were a number of different editions of the Voynich manuscript that suddenly all come out at the same time. And 
this is this is rather surprising, but this sometimes happens that at a certain point people start thinking about a particular manuscript or a particular person like me, and suddenly a lot of books come out on it. All I can say is that the the one that I contributed to the reproduction is really very splendid, and so you can see a lot of detail. It's a lovely manuscript. I can't see anyone cracking it for another, I don't know, 20, 30, 100 years. <laughs> but um, I'd like to be around when it happens because I really would like to read what's in there. Oh, yeah. It would be great, but it almost seems like we would get further and further away from being able to do it as you know, the further we get away from its source. Uh, no, I think it would have been difficult even in, uh, in 1500. People would have been confused by it. It's definitely been written by somebody who was very, very interested in plants because the, the plant detail is amazing. Like, uh, you know, a rhizome root is one which connects underground and connects to several different plants. It's quite rare, but it's really a detailed drawing of it. So people, whoever made this, hasn't just written rubbish about plants. They've actually dug them up washed them, looked at the roots, colored them, checked, you know, and then discovered, and I think it's probably for medical purposes. I suspect the person who wrote it was a doctor, at the very least a herbalist, but probably a doctor. I'm also pretty certain that he lived in northern Italy, somewhere near Pisa, and I'm, I'm absolutely certain that he was Jewish because some of the references in there and some of the descriptions and some of the drawings reflect uh, mikvahs, which were common at that time. And they weren't common in Christian communities and they weren't common in... Uh, anyway, read the book. But, <laughs> you know, so I can describe various things about him with certainty, his, his religion, his profession, his, his where he was. I can also say that he probably traveled across the Swiss Alps to southern Germany, or that he was patronized by a German family, because uh, one of the little drawings in uh, Sagittarius shows a bow and arrow, but it doesn't show a long bow, it shows a crossbow. Hmm. And crossbows were very common in southern Germany, just north of the Alps, and they weren't common in Italy. So, you know, and the little hints like that, and me and uh, two of my colleagues who are from Central Europe, one is Polish, who is also interested in John Dee, did a lot of digging. And, well, we haven't dug out everything, otherwise we'd have the answer, but we've dug out more than other people have up to this point. Very cool. Well, the devil's in those details, and you seem to be closing <laughs> in on it. And uh, <laughs> Wow. Well, Dr. Skinner, this has really been an honor for me because I do have so much respect for your work and contributions to the magical community and history. Hopefully, what seems like a magical resurgence continues to grow and more people end up appreciating those contributions as well. Before we go, would you like to remind the people where to get deeper into your work, any upcoming projects or your web address, those kind of things? Well, if you're interested in feng shui, then I've done a couple of books on feng shui, particularly one on flying star feng shui. Flying star feng shui is one of the best methods for working inside a home. If you're interested in Greco-Egyptian magic, then I've done Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic, which was published by Golden Board. You can see it on Amazon. You can pick it up in bookshops in the States. 
few workshops in, in England as well, and a couple in Europe. Sadly, not in Singapore. <laughs> then I've also done a techniques of grimoire of Solomonic magic, which covers a lot of the grimoires, uh, and it actually lays down the various tools that you need and how they should look and how they should be prepared. So techniques of Solomonic magic is useful if you're going to do that sort of thing. And if you were interested in the Goetia, then uh, David Rankin and I produced the Goetia of Dr. Rudd. Dr. Rudd was a real practitioner um, in the mid-1600s. He actually advanced magic a fair bit, and uh, we, we produced his manuscript in entirety. And I've written quite a lot of commentary on how he did it and where the historical background is and all that sort of thing. So that's good if you're interested in the Goetia. Otherwise, there's actually in total 46 books out of my pen. Uh, <laughs> some of them um, long since gone out of print, but I'm fairly easy to find on Amazon. Probably easier to find on Amazon than in the bookshops. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the case these days? Yep. Well, very cool. Again, can't thank you enough. You're an inspiration, man. Take care out there. Okay, thanks for putting up with me for what is it uh well over uh, well over now. <laughs> oh yeah, 2 hours. <laughs> oh, good god. Anyway, it's been fun talking to you. Thanks, Greg. You got it. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Peace. Abracadabra and cheers indeed, Hireside Chatters. Big thanks to Dr. Stephen Skinner. Mm. So, so impressed with his knowledge, and this was an episode that I studied quite a lot for, if you can believe it, but there's just so much, so much to know. Just even getting your head around a single century or tracing one particular text is difficult enough, not to mention the various layers of context for the times, various waxing and waning influences, laws and attitudes, and the level of aggression towards magic at a particular point. Whew. I find it to be a lot of fun, actually, but quite challenging. Conveniently, I'm also deep into Gordon White's Grimoire course, which has to be like the best of its kind. I know nothing like it. Tons of amazing information. Very synergistic with this episode of THC and what I've been having to digest for quote-unquote work lately. But the Higromantia is now on my wedding registry, along with an altar to replace my makeshift one out of my fiancé's childhood toy box. And we also got a whole lot of dab rig supplies and concentrate stuff on there, too. So deal with it, family. You got a real Sophie's Choice to make here. Are you going to buy me and the lady drug supplies or occult stuff? Or a nice Nutribullet blender while you can still grab yourself a neutral option. Act quick, family. And another effect that this episode and Gordon's Grimoire course have had on me is that they have sent me on a path of looking for old rare books and libraries or collections that I could check out locally. It's just fascinating stuff. And a lot of what I found isn't in English, which is to be expected. But if I had an extra 10 grand laying around... I could see the appeal in getting an old book of spells that maybe hasn't been translated and slowly going through and working out that translation. I mean, fuck Sudoku and the Sunday paper crossword puzzle, right? I mean, do this if you want a challenging puzzle to solve. But I love it. 
one of the most academic approaches to magic we've probably taken with a guest. And I have a lot of pride in this show because I don't find many interviews with Dr. Skinner out there. And I think about how many people listen to this show and just making it to this point, you really are in a pretty special club. Like Miguel Connor too. Great show on Gnosticism two weeks ago. Take that and this piece and you have a nice little crash course and some very deep material. Do you think anyone in your regular life understands these things like you do just off these cliff notes? I mean, especially if you heard the plus shows, these two episodes would be the start of a nice little gift set if there were such a thing. Of course, I don't want to diminish the depth of these studies or these guests work and make it sound like, well, two hour podcast, we know what we need to know. But at the same time, we are putting this out to a lot of people compared to what's typical for a genre like magic. Granted, it's a small niche, so I'm not trying to brag about anything because it's kind of like being the world's tallest midget, but it is still cool to me. An analogy would be Joe Rogan, right? So he's got like the podcast of all podcasts and his audience is larger than probably two thirds of what's on TV. So I love to watch it because of that fact. And when he does a show about Pizzagate or one with Randall Carlson, I get all worked up and giddy because it's not that it's the most mind blowing stuff ever for someone who looks into this regularly, but just because I know how many people it's reaching. And that's what's cool about it. Scale that down to THC, where we're reaching tens of thousands of people, but our subjects are even more obscure. (laughs) Anyway, I do think the good doctor is spot on when he talks about the difficulty of doing magic. We've been trained to sort of brush the whole subject off like, oh yeah, I can manifest things with squiggles on paper. If it was that easy, everyone would do it. Okay, well, how many times have you done it? How many times have you tried? You can't outsource everything. And I think the analogy that magic is like chemistry is great. It requires a lot of setup, precise calculations. It's not easy when you start to get into it. But easy shouldn't really be the question either. Is it worth it should be the question. And to me, it seems like it is, though I am still light on personal results, if I'm being honest. But staying up to date with Empire hasn't resulted in anything either, so I guess the bar is pretty low. And if you only heard a one-hour show today, know that the Higher Side Chats always puts out the first hour of each show for free. But if you want to go deeper, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus for just five bucks a month on our website and unlock the whole shebang. Today in the Plus Show, I asked Dr. Skinner about separating real dangers and concerns in magic from that religious propaganda, John Dee and Edward Kelly's alchemical work, separating magic, religion, and the mystery tradition, the connection between spirits and powerful art, that part I love, ufology's connection to magic and inner earth beings, that part I love too. Invisibility magic, feng shui, the Vonic manuscript, and everything you ever wanted to know about magic but were afraid to ask. So join the club, you get the full archives, lifetime access to the Higher Side Chats Plus forum, and occasional treats that you just won't believe. And it's been a pretty good month. Last week was Richard Belzer, a big name to be getting down here in the gutter with little old me. And something a lot of people liked, although there were a lot of people who also noticed that he does seem a little stuck in the liberal bubble. I would agree, but still fun. Miguel Connor, super great romp through Gnostic scholarship. Boom, what more do you want? 
Recluse, who I thought knew a lot about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon aspects of the deep state and some of their unsavory operations. And then Isaac Weishaupt, who dropped some knowledge on May the 4th about esoteric and occult aspects of Star Wars and other media staples. I think we've done all right in May. Well worth five bucks if you ask me, and June will be no different. Next week, we're getting into reptilian, bankster priesthood, secrets of American history, and instead of the same old news articles about giant skeletons in early America, we're going deep into the journals and written accounts of conquistadors who said they encountered living giants. So, hell of a ride next week. And then the one after that is just really high-level conspiracy stuff that's well-sourced that you're going to love. So sign up already. You know this show is unique enough. Treat yourself, and I'll see you next time. Do pick up Dr. Skinner's books if you want to go deeper. Find a way to let them know you appreciated this interview. And I've done my part. Your move, oppressive overlords of the timeline, spirituality siphoners, and religious authorities guilty of the great grimoire fracturing. Your fucking...